Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hello, listeners. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to let you know that it does come from Dr. Raj's Beyond the Pearls video lecture series. So if you get confused by any references to the video or slideshow, you can sign up at beyondthepearls.net to view those and follow along. So with that being said, here's today's episode. So now that you got your notes all squared away, let's talk about a very important part of your boards, which is stress testing. So uh, I'm going to walk through this together. I know there's like 20 million arrows here pointing in all directions. So let's just go through this. So when we talk about stress testing, we're going to, I'm going to have a talk called chest pain. And in my chest pain talk, we will talk about who gets stress testing, but I'll give you a little preview right now, which is when someone comes in for chest pain, you know what to get first, right? It's going to be an an EKG. And if that EKG is unremarkable, you're probably going to end up getting some troponins, right? That's always going to be the most important cardiac marker. And if those are negative, well, you really have to figure out why is this patient having chest pain? And the way you do that is based upon the history and the physical. It just is, you know. And when we talk about the physical exam and the history, what are some important things to note is how did they describe the chest pain, especially on a board exam? Do they describe the chest pain as pleuritic? If the chest pain is pleuritic, well, come up with your differential that starts with the letter one, P. What do I mean by that? P4, pleural effusion. P4, pneumothorax, pneumonia, pericarditis. So think about all uh, the different P's that you can have there. And the other thing you want to look at is, is the pain reproducible? If it's reproducible, you think of what? Things like, ow, costrochondritis. That's not going to be the most important thing. But remember, I will say this. Is it possible that someone could have a pleuritic chest pain and it be cardiovascular? The answer is yes, but not really on the boards. Is it possible that someone has a reproducible chest pain and it is cardiovascular? The answer is yes, but not really on the board exams. So, and after you go through a lot of the cardiovascular uh, causes of chest pain, don't forget non-cardiovascular such as what? gastroesophageal reflux disease, GERD, 
We talked about what? Heartburn. So you want to have a broad differential diagnosis. And of course, if you go through all your differential, you order all the appropriate testing and everything is negative, well, the patient's going to just ask you point blank, so what caused my chest pain, you know? And that's when you really have to say, is it truly the heart or not, you know? And that's when I think stress testing really plays a big role. And most of these patients will be in the emergency department and they have a negative workup for everything else. And should that stress test be an inpatient or outpatient? And most of the time we do it, what? As an outpatient, most of the time. Because, I mean, they're already had a negative EKG, the troponins were negative, they're pretty much going to do, what? Nothing until they get that stress test in most cases. So that's when I think about doing the stress test. We're going to have other questions about stress testing when we talk about chest pain coming up. But now that you've decided that you want to do a stress test, there are two main questions you have to ask. Should I do exercise or should it be chemical? And by default, what is always going to be your answer on the board exams? Exercise. You always have to do an exercise uh, stress test. They have to prove to you that they can't do it. So when is exercise stress test uh, not going to be the answer? Well, number one is if they can't reach their predicted heart rate. And you're going to ask me, how do you know what their predicted heart rate is going to be? Well, remember when we used to go to the gym before COVID-19, you know, and we're doing some elliptical? Well, we try to get to our target heart rate by saying 220 minus your age. 220 minus your age, you want to get around 80% of that is going to be your target heart rate. So if they can't reach their target heart rate, well, you know what? That means they have to get a what? A chemical stress test. So you want to make sure of that first. And of course, if they can't exercise, you know what I mean? They're going to do chemical. And remember, when we say exercise, everyone always thinks that it's going to be treadmill. It doesn't always have to be the treadmill. Sometimes they'll ride the bicycle, you know, and for some reason, they don't have any legs. They could do what's called a cycle ergometry. So they could do this, they could do bicycle, they could do treadmill. There's so many different things you could do, but you have to make sure they can hit their target heart rate. So now that you've determined that they could exercise, that's always your default answer on the boards. You got to combine the exercise with some way to realize that there's going to be stress in the heart. And what are the three main things that we combine with exercise? It's either going to be an EKG, echo or nuclear. And how do you know which one to pick? Well, it depends on the patient. So when you not want to pick an EKG, I know when you read all these review books, they're going to say, if they're on dejection, if they have left frontal bench block, if they have, you know what I mean? And the answer is, if you have any baseline abnormalities on EKG, then you can't really do an EKG because you need to look for those changes. So baseline abnormalities mean no EKG. When do you not want to do an echo? And we kind of mentioned this earlier, which is, you know, it depends on the body habitus. And, you know, anytime I say BMI, people always think it's obese. And that's not the case. That sometimes, what is the enemy of ultrasound? Air and bone, air and bone. So you can imagine, let's say it's one of my patients who has really, really bad emphysema. It's going to be hard to image the heart. And when you're very kytectic, low BMI, you're not going to have enough space in between the ribs. We call that the footprint. So it really depends on the body habitus itself. Very elevated BMI and sometimes a very low BMI. And the reason why you can't do it is because you got to flip them for the echo. They do some stress and you got to do the echo. 
And the last is going to be nuclear. Now, nuclear is what you kind of want if you got the good insurance, right? Nuclear is going to be prognostic, but it's always going to be the most expensive and time-consuming. So once you get a board question, you're going to determine if it's going to be chemical or exercise. Your default is exercise. And what is always going to be your default pairing for the board questions? It would be an exercise EKG. Exercise EKG. That's what every insurance wants you to pick right there. But if they can exercise, you're going to do a chemical. And when we talk about picking the chemical, there are a bunch of choices out there. I put the big three in green. You could pick dobutamine. And I kind of combine these two together, adenosine and dipyridamol. And of course, way in the top, I put regetasin, which is goes by the brand name Lexascan. And I know a lot of people use this over here, uh, use this a lot. I'll say it now so I won't forget. You know, Lexascan is an adenosine agonist. It's an adenosine agonist. So when we talk about, you know, which chemical do you want to use, well, it really depends upon the side effects of the patient. So what do I mean by that? So dobutamine, how does it work? It's a beta-1 agonist. So when you not want to use dobutamine, if they're going to be tachycardic at baseline, if they have a lot of tachyarrhythmias at baseline, I probably wouldn't use dobutamine. When we talk about adenosine and dipyrinamol, well, both these are vasodilators. So I always wonder, how do these drugs stress the heart if they're vasodilators? They actually induce something called a coronary steel syndrome. So because they dilate, they suck blood away from the heart. It steals blood away from the heart, inducing a coronary steel syndrome. And the reason why I kind of want you to kind of pair these up together is because they kind of have the same side effect profile. By the way, dipyridamol is also known as persantine. That's the brand name. And what is who shouldn't get this? People who are coughing, people who are wheezing, because it induces a bronchospasm. I don't mind if they have COPD or asthma, as long as they're well-controlled. But they're wheezing, coughing, not well controlled. These cause a lot of bronchospasm in these patients. We thought that's why Lexascan would be, you know, the best thing ever is because hopefully it wouldn't cause a lot of those bronchospasm. But the data isn't great for it. But what is, you know, the ones we use are going to be based on the side effect profile. And once again, once you decided to use one of these, you have to pair it with something down here. And the three classic things we pair it with are going to be EKG. Echo and nuclear, these three. And notice they had the same limitations. So you say, when do you not use EKG? Baseline abnormalities. Echo, body habitus. Nuclear, it's great because it's prognosis, but it's expensive and time consuming. And I know a bunch of cardiac fellows are going to be watching this or pre cardiac fellows. And yes, there are stress testing where we combine it with MRI. And one of the hot topics right now is combining a stress test with a PET scan. So we do that. And I would definitely say as someone who has a lot of passion for sarcoid, I use a lot of MRI and PET scan in making a diagnosis of cardiac sarcoid on a side note. But this is going to be how the main way of my weapons of how do I answer questions about stress testing on the boards. You know, I thought it was a question right away. It's coronary steel syndrome, and everyone paid attention. What do we say that is? If that's how adenosine and things like dipyridamol work, is that 
it dilates inducing a steal away from the heart. So at least you have the answer and all my words there so you can pause the video and read it if you'd like to. So now, Here's a picture. So we talked about doing an exercise. It doesn't always have to be a treadmill over here. Look at look how happy this guy is. He's doing his Bruce protocol. We could do bicycle or we could do ergometry. And this is what it looks like when you have a nuclear perfusion scan is that, you know, you have the resting images and these are always going to be, this is the left ventricle and look at the perfusion you get here. And then we do a stress and look at the lack of perfusion during a stress. So this is how we interpret a stress test and nuclear perfusion test. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Finally. All right. So we have a 60-year-old man is evaluated for chest pain of four months duration. He describes the pain as sharp, located in the left chest, with no radiation or associated symptoms that occur with walking one to two blocks and resolves with rest. Occasionally, the pain improves with continued walking or occurs during the evening hours. He has hypertension. Family history does not include cardiovascular disease in any first degree relatives. His only medication is the calcium channel blocker amylodipine. On exam, he is afebrile, normal tensive, non-tacky, non-tachypnic, BMI is 28. No carotid breweries are present. There's a normal S1 and S2 with no murmurs are heard. Lung fields are clear and distal pulses are normal. Ah, they put an EKG here. Let's take a look at it. You know, I always say that when I get an opportunity to teach EKGs, I go through the rate, the rhythm, the access, the intervals, and morphology. Of course, sometimes these EKGs come up you only have a few seconds left on the clock. It is a timed exam. So take a one look at this. And what's the question? Which of the following is the most appropriate diagnostic test to perform next? So in this individual, you definitely want to, he would be a good candidate for a what? A stress test. I don't think going for coronary angiography would be the thing to do just yet. I don't think an echocardiogram by itself would give you the answer that we're looking for. So it comes down to what type of stress test do you want to perform? So can this individual exercise? And I believe it says that he is walking, you know, all the time. And so the answer is he needs a what? Exercise stress test, not a, a chemical induced. So the answer here is going to be what? D. So how about this 60-year-old man is evaluated for chest pain? The patient reports the chest pain is present on the left side of the chest, has a burning quality, is non-radiating, occurs at times with activity, and resolves rest, and has been present intermittently for four months. Uh, he has also noted episodes of similar pain in the evening and after eating dinner. Other than occasional chest pain with exertion, he can walk without limitation. His medical history is significant for hypertension. His only medication is hydrochlorothiazide. 
On exam, a febrile, normal tensive, non-tacky, non-tachypnic. BMI is 30. His general physical exam is normal. They do an EKG as they should. Sinus rhythm, there's some non-specific one millimeter ST segment changes in the anterior and lateral leads. There are some findings consistent with left atrial enlargement and they meet the criteria for LVH on the EKG. Which of the following is the most appropriate diagnostic test to perform next? So in this patient, would you do a coronary calcium score? The answer is no. We're going to talk about that shortly, but remember, that's going to be a test that we use for risk stratification. This is not someone who's acting active chest pain. We're not going to risk stratify. This person needs to have further evaluation. Uh, the question becomes, can he exercise or does he need chemical? And I think in the vignette, it says he's a big fan of walking, which says we're not going to do what? D. So what do we need to do on him? Should he get a nuclear test? Maybe he has really good insurance. Or should he get a very simple EKG? And here, the answer is perfusion. Why? You know, I made that comment about insurance. He can't do an EKG. Why? He has baseline EKG abnormalities, LVH, left atrial enlargement, some ST changes to begin with. So by default, he gets a what? Exercise perfusion study. C. Let's do one more. I know that a couple of you didn't like that question. It was a little tricky one, wasn't it? How about this 74-year-old woman is evaluated for a three-week history of left shoulder pain and dyspnea on exertion? Medical history is significant for COPD, hypertension, and coronary artery disease. She underwent stenting of the mid-left anterior descending three years ago. Because of her lung disease, she has limited exercise activity. Her meds are ACE inhibitor, a hydrochlorothiazide, a statin, aspirin, fluticasone, inhaled steroid, albuterol, and inhaled hypertropion. On exam, a febrile normal intensive, non-tacky, non-tachypnic, BMI is 29. Her estimated CVP is slightly elevated at 8. I'm not jumping up and down about it. Her cardiac exam reveals a 2 out of cyst mid-systolic murmur heard best at the cardiac basis and some late expiratory wheezing heard in bilateral lung fields. EKG shows LVH and some repolarization abnormalities. Which of the following is the most appropriate diagnostic test to perform next? I would say there are a few people that are saying, take this one right to the cath lab. It's not wrong to think that, but if we were to go back and, you know, evaluate her and her symptoms, I think going to the cath lab would be just a little bit aggressive on her, you know? So especially because we're going to be reevaluating the stent, I think that it is reasonable to do a stress test. So when we talk about stress testing, well, which one should we do? Is she going to exercise? The answer is no. It says right in the vignette, unable to exercise. So it's really going to be between a and C, because we have to choose what chemical. And I believe here she's going to choose C because she had wheezing bilaterally. So you can't use adenosine. You're not going to use dipyridamol. So this is going to be a dobutamine stress echo. Makes the most sense of these choices right here. The answer is C. Outstanding. And we already talked about regatison. And I know I, I pronounced that wrong, so don't get on my case. Let's call it a Lexascan, you know. And, you know, we tend to see the pairing 
of what we see in our hospital. I know many people get a Lexus scan, nuclear study, and that's why we all should work hard and have good insurance. All right, the answer is gonna be C. So I wanted to say a few things. So this is what we call a viability study. Now I'm gonna spend some time with this because it is very, very controversial. So when do I even think about a viability study? It has to be the vignette where someone comes in with stable angina. You understand? So to have stable angina, you have to have known coronary artery disease and beyond therapy. And usually I think about this study when the vignette is someone who has known stable angina, walks the same amount of blocks, walks the same amount of stairs and gets pain and it stops. You take the same amount of nitro and it goes away. But what happens is because they have pain, you know, their loved ones are like, hey, you should go to the ER, even though it's just like their classic stable angina. You go to the ER, they get the EKG, it shows nothing. Because if it showed something, you would probably be talking about acute coronary syndrome. They would get troponins, but they'd be negative because if they were positive, we'd be talking about acute coronary syndrome. So we have a patient with stable angina known who's having chest pain when they do the, you know, their usual exertion. Well, what is the next best step in the management of this patient? And the classic choices on board exams are going to be, well, should we go to the cath lab, you know, and stent? Or should we um, get a stress test? That's my only choices. Go straight to the cath lab or should we get a stress test? And, you know, the answer is neither. Because if you were to get a stress test and someone with known heart disease, the stress test is going to be one Positive, no duh, you know, so why would we get a stress test? Um, when you go right to the cath lab, which some people might do, but I'm not saying it's going to be wrong, you know what I mean, is that what the question becomes when you reperfuse, do you need to know if that myocardium is still viable? And that's where this test called a myocardial viability study kind of has its little niche. Do you want to confirm that the myocardium is viable in an objective sense, you know what I mean, before going to the cath lab? So when we talk about a viability study, a couple things. Number one, it looks just like a nuclear study. In fact, you really can't tell the difference. And sometimes when you do a viability study, you may do a little stress on it. So what happens is that you inject with a tracer, and this tracer gets taken up by the heart. If it gets taken up by the heart, we call the myocardium viable. And if it's viable, we may use terms like it's a hibernating myocardium because it's like the hibernating bear. It's just sleeping, but it's still alive. Or if it happens acutely, we call it stunned. It's just stunned, and that's why it's not working. It's still perfusing. You know what I mean? But I'll be the first. I talk to a lot of my buddies who are cardiologists, and they hate the viability study. And they just kind of look at me and say, hey, Raj. You know, if someone says, I have chest pain, by definition, there's got to be some viable myocytes or else they wouldn't feel pain to begin with. And you really just, you can't argue with them. You know what I mean? Plus, they're, they're kind of bigger than me. But I'm like, all right, that makes sense. So on the board exams, I would only pick this if they ask you that they need to have something objective to kind of prove that the myocardium is viable or they ask you what test can you order to see if the myocardium is viable, then we think about a viability study. So I wanted to mention it to you. And uh, we will talk about this more when we talk about stable angina. So 
I want to finish off in the non-invasive imaging by talking about uh, coronary artery calcification scoring. And does it still have a role in, pra in practice? I mean, the answer is yes, it does. I mean, we still order that here at my institution. But the background is this, is that as I stated earlier, cardiologists love prediction models, whether it's a scoring system to predict or whether it's going to be a lab like a C-reactive protein or something like this, uh, calcium scoring. So when do we want to think about calcium scoring is basically the bottom line point is right here in bold and red. Patients have to be what? Asymptomatic. There is no role for ordering a coronary artery calcification score if you're having active symptoms. And the second part is if they're asymptomatic, it's not really going to help out if they're low risk for heart disease because if they're low risk, you pretty much should do nothing. And if they're high risk, well, they pretty much should either have a stress test or go to the cath lab, you know, but it's going to be people at intermediate risk. So that's a take home message when you think about it, asymptomatic intermediate risk. But first bullet point, I'll just read it to you. There is no evidence from randomized trials that patients have a better outcome if they if the calcifications in the coronary arteries are measured. So there's no mortality survival outcome with this study. So I put some three take-home points. I mentioned and I put all the studies where this information came from. I already stated that the best patients to use it with are asymptomatic at intermediate risk. I also said that its role is very, very controversial in symptomatic patients. Many patients just ask, why not do CT angiography? Which, you know what? Some cardiologists do that. There was one study from a while back called the Coronary CT Angiography Evaluation for Clinical Outcomes. This was an international multicenter registry called the CONFIRM. And they said prediction by CT angiography was no better than calcification scoring. And once again, asymptomatic patients. It's a very specific cohort of patients over here. So what are the limitations for doing a coronary artery calcification score? You know, it does not adequately assess the severity of the coronary artery stenosis, okay? And, you know, it's also causing a lot of anxiety because it is a non-contrast CT study. And the more you CT people, the more things you're going to want to find and things you don't. And when we talk about pulmonary together, I'm going to be talking about, oops, I found the pulmonary nodule, which is very good. Well, let me take that back. You just found the nodule. I can't say it's very good. It causes a lot of anxiety. And the last thing I'm going to mention is cardiac MRI. And when we talk about cardiac MRI, it's, it's, you know, its use is increasing all the time. I am a huge fan of ordering cardiac MRI when we talk about cardiac sarcoid in these patients. Just remember some of the broad things. MRI is very claustrophobic. You'll be surprised how it's not benign. Some people need conscious sedation just to go in there. It's very loud and it is scary. And when you do cardiac MRI, you do need contrast. And the contrast agent is gadolinium. And I do want to mention that you cannot give gadolinium to those who have a poor glomerular filtration rate, GFR. Usually when it's going to be less than 60, we worry about it because there is an entity called nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. This was first discovered and described in 2006. I personally have not seen it, but this is a classic thing that nephrologists and cardiologists talk about all the time. And it is a good board question because what do you worry about in giving gadolinium to these patients? You worry about this disorder. And I think I have a picture of an MRI. 
So this is one of the many reasons why we like to get a cardiac MRI. Look at the great views we have here. We sometimes combine this with stress tests, like I, or, like I mentioned earlier. And with that being said, I have to say I'm very proud of everyone because look what we just accomplished. We accomplished chest x-rays, echo and mugga, stress testing, viability studies. Remember, think about this when we talk about stable angina. And we actually talked about CT and MRI. So the next step is talking about the invasive. We just finished the non-invasive. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.